Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Nathan Oblack. Hello and welcome back to the podcast for cultural reformation. I'm Nathan Oblack and I'm joined as usual by Ryan Aris and Dr. Joe Boot. And uh, just recently, Joe, uh, you wrote an article titled Of Sheep and Men. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> it's caused a, a bit of a stir in the evangelical community. Uh, <laughs> would you care to comment and defend yourself a little bit there, Joe? Whoops. Uh, <laughs> I just read the article is what I would say to um, anybody who's got... Um, questions about it and I think we'll pick up on some of the themes that uh, that I address in there as we as we go through the show today but um, uh, I think what we're doing or we've been talking about in this particular article is is considering some of the religious root of these things that uh, we've been uh, we've been exploring uh, and that we're facing in in the in in the culture rather than just um, these sort of superficial uh, analyses um, yeah, and sometimes you need to put the cat amongst the pigeons with uh, when you uh, challenge some uh, shibboleths, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. No, that's right. And you can find that we- that uh, article on our website, ezrainstitute.ca. And uh, just before we get uh, to today's conversation, Ryan, is there anything uh, we should be aware of as uh, the season of Advent and Christmas is coming up? Uh, anything on Ezra Press we should be looking at? Yeah, thanks, Nathan. So we, uh, we're trying to get to this a little earlier than we did last year, because what, uh, what we have for Advent, our friends uh, Grant and Erica Van Brimmer have uh, produced this for us a couple of years ago, is a, a 25-day from beginning of Advent up until Christmas Day daily devotional. And this is a, just a little short book, one page for each day. Uh, a scripture reading and some meditations on the different themes of Advent. It's titled "Behold Your King," and the reason that it's uh, that it carries that title is because it deals specifically with the kingship of the Lord Jesus. And it, this is a this is a perspective that is often often overlooked or underemphasized amongst. Uh, amongst evangelical Christmas materials, because we, we love the idea of the baby in the manger. We love the idea of mm. the silent night and the, uh, the peace uh, that, uh, that Christ comes to, uh, to bring, and that's all true, but we, we tend to emphasize it to the neglect of the kingship of Christ. Mm-hmm. That's right. I remember hearing a couple of, uh, a couple of years ago a, a Christmas sermon that uh, anytime, anytime God says in Scripture, I'll go down and see for myself what's going on, like with the world. Uh, that's that's a uh, that's a setup for a scene of judgment. Mm. So when we uh, when we hear Emmanuel, uh, God with us, like that that should make us that should make us quake a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like God, God with like here now, that's a. Uh, so we, uh, what we're trying to do with, with this devotional is, ju- is emphasize, uh, maybe provide a bit of a, a corrective to, 
to the uh, the emphasis on gifts with some uh, some emphasis on the the rule and reign of Jesus the King. So that was a long way to say visit EzraPress.ca, pick up a copy of Behold Your King, get it now so that you can be ready for it December first and read it through with your family on Advent. Great. Awesome. And the only other thing to mention before we get into today's conversation is, uh, Ryan, you mentioned this last week, but uh, just a reminder to our listeners that, that we are a nonprofit uh, organization, and we depend on donations to keep this podcast going, this mm-hmm. ministry going. Uh, so if you uh, have benefited from the podcast, uh, any any donation is, is welcome and will go a long way uh, to continuing our work. And you can go to our website at Ezra institute.ca and you'll see the donate button in the top uh, right of the screen and anything you can give is very much appreciated and uh, that brings us to today's conversation and uh, for that we'll have to uh, think back to last week where we tackled the the great reformation and specifically the cultural implications of the reformation recognizing Mm -hmm. that it wasn't solely uh, a movement within the church and if you'd like to uh, go back and, and listen to last week's episode, uh, you can hear of all the different uh, implications, social, cultural implications of, of the Reformation. But we mentioned at the end of last week's episode that uh, we're now seeing uh, what, what might be called a, a new uh, counter-Reformation. And uh, we alluded to that briefly at the end of the episode, but I wonder if we could start today's conversation with... Um, a question to Joe: How, how, and where are we seeing this this new Counter Reformation today? Before before we get into that, and you can uh, set that up again. But we've also been saying for a few weeks now that we're mm. going to take some questions. Today we are going to get to some questions to a few uh, in yeah. the the second half of the show. Right, and th- and we still hope to dedicate an entire episode to to some of the questions that have been coming in in, in a few weeks. That's right. Yeah, so all of that is the uh, the sort of the backdrop to what we've been doing these last few weeks, which is a, a, a series on reformational thought right. uh, for this whole season, uh, thinking about reformational thinking, reformational philosophy, mm-hmm. and we had this hiatus for Reformation Day, right. uh, and uh, talking about the the immediate relevance of reformational thought there mm-hmm. expressed in in the culture, and as you mentioned, Nathan what we promised people was that we would talk a bit about this counter-reformation That's right. uh, and, and pick up on some of that before we return um, in certainly in a couple of weeks uh, to some of the, the, the more of the details of reformational philosophy itself. Um, probably a, a good place to start would be to say that in some respects, the, the, the counter-reformation formally was the reaction of the Roman church. That's right. Uh, as originally uh, understood, uh, to the Reformation and, and certain uh, limited attempts to reform the, the Roman Church. But uh, when we are, are sort of using this language right now of, of, of counter-Reformation, we, we mean the sort of intellectual movement mm-hmm. that began to react against the, the, the focus of the Reformation, which is the absolute sovereignty of God, um, the redemption of creation, uh, and and of the totality, actually, of the cosmos in Jesus Christ, his work of reconciliation and redemption, beginning with our justification, and how the West began to sort of push back against that. And uh, the humanists gave it a name. They called it the Enlightenment. 
Um, and uh, in fact, uh, they just took that name, gave it to themselves. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's funny so how. Enlightenment, yeah. Well, of course, because they they also called the the Christian era the sort of the Dark Ages. That's right. So so naturally, when they recovered their Greek philosophy and Greek learning, they wanted to call it the Enlightenment. Um, and uh, the culmination of the thought of the Enlightenment Enlightenment was seen in the French Revolution in for the political sphere. So I think you could say that sort of by the end of the 18th century, a sort of counter-reformation uh, and, and pushback against this reformed Puritan vision mm-hmm. is, is well underway. And uh, by sort of World War I and then especially after World War II, we've been in a kind of free fall in terms of the uh, a revolutionized Western culture, a sense of a loss of confidence, especially in um, Britain and the British Empire, around uh, which would be another interesting topic for another day actually Mm -hmm. Uh, given all the talk about the evils of imperialism today Mm -hmm. so-called but there's sort of a loss of confidence in a christian vision a christian view of the world and uh, the shock of those two world wars and then what's happened to us politically culturally socially since Um, and uh, in fact um, mark uh, musa in uh, his book Um, Nazi Oaks, he actually says, and I quote, during the Enlightenment, the three pillars of the Protestant Reformation, i.e. the scriptures alone, faith alone, and grace alone, were replaced by reason alone. In turn, deism, a strict natural theology based purely on nature and reason, replaced many Protestant values. The Enlightenment profaned and secularized Christianity. The deists did not believe God interfered with his creation. Rather, he designed it to run independent of him by immutable natural laws. Uh, We'll come back to that in a a little while, that thought, because we're going to talk about the extension of this sort of uh, so-called Enlightenment counter-reformation and how it's expressed itself. But uh, that was fundamentally it. It the, 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 The notion that reason really is the substitute for revelation. And um, that's brought us to a very interesting cultural moment now that over the last few years uh, has sort of brought about what we can call an unholy trinity of ideas that the church is in a real uh, struggle against uh, uh, right in our time. And and I would call those um, COVID, climate, and critical race theory or critical theory better it's not just critical race theory critical theory in all its manifestations mm. covid climate and critical theory and sounds like a good title to our next conference <laughs> it would it would, <laughs> would make a good mission of god conference that in fact i think the last mission of god conference that we had to postpone because we couldn't get mm. our speakers into the country yeah. were, were dealing with actually That's covid right. and climate right. those That's were right. two of the things mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we need to just add the third there, uh, critical theory. Mm. But those are the sort of three... I like uh, it when they come in threes. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's an unholy trinity. And I think that those are fundamentally the way in which the counter-reformation is expressing itself right now as the product of man's thought, man's idea, man's reason, man's feeling. Um, and uh, the, the, the sort of three... Uh, C's, COVID climate, critical uh, critical theory, involve zero COVID, mm. zero carbon, mm. uh, zero tolerance. And uh, one of the fascinating uh, things about that uh, is the sort of um, 
the notion that actually all three of those things are inherently impossible. Right. Uh, they're inherently unachievable. You're, you can only ever be moving toward them, but never actually arriving at them. If you could even argue that you can't even be moving toward them. I, mm. I would argue that even, even of itself is problematic. Uh, but these sort of impossible goals, I would call them utopian goals, and mm. utopian goals are always impossible. Utopia means no place. Right. I think it was coined by Sir Thomas More. Um, and uh, the, the, because they're unachievable and they're always on this infinite horizon, it gives justification to the notion that you need the state mm. with increasing power authority, reach to govern every aspect of life to try and get you to this point of ultimate simplicity. And actually that's true, you know, zero in mathematics, um, unity in Greek thought, you know, where Plotinus ends up with the absolute one, mm. right? The uh, total oneness, uh, a, a total, the idea of a singularity, complete unity. And so this sense that you get with the, the, the power of this word zero, this big O, this sense of uh, um, a, a point, a moment at which utopia is reached, the big zero is reached, the omega point, as mm. some of the uh, transhumanists and posthumanists yeah. have called it. Uh, it's inherently impossible to get there. But what it does is it justifies this dialectical struggle of always needing this boogeyman to struggle against. There's still carbon. There's still COVID. There's still intolerance. And until those are all net zero, uh, we haven't arrived at our utopia. And to get there, you must have total control. You must right. have an ever-expanding, growing state and reach. So those are quite powerful concepts. Uh, but this is where we seem to have come to now in the counter-reformation is man's kingdom and it's going to involve, involve him saving the planet hmm. um with zero carbon saving himself from disease with zero covid and uh destroying so-called prejudice which is going to mean zero tolerance for anything that doesn't go along with critical theory right and uh although we're seeing uh, the first signs of a significant pushback in some quarters. This seems to be the where the battle lines have been drawn, at least in our uh, in our decade here of the of the early part of the twenty first century. Right, and I think a really obvious example of all of this is um, really what inspired, I think, this topic for the podcast, which is the the climate change conference COP twenty six in yeah. Glasgow, mm. and. Uh, we're seeing a lot of what you've just described play out in real time with some of the rhetoric coming from the speakers at that conference. And I'm pretty sure Joe has some clips uh, bookmarked for us here. All well, right. Well, this should be fun. I mean, Let's I think a, in terms of actually... Multimedia. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is some high-tech stuff going on in the studio yeah, he's, today. He's, he's holding his laptop to the microphone. <laughs> hey, don't tell him that the secret's behind, oh, the, no. behind the curtain here. <laughs> This is like the Wizard of Oz here. We're going to give away all of our recording techniques. <laughs> so, so we've got some real gems here from 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 COP twenty six. This is the redoubtable British Prime Minister here, uh, Boris Johnson. Um, I'm going to give you a couple of clips from him, so you just get a sense of the. I want listeners to get a sense of the religious fervor 
with the with which these things are 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 being preached. Uh, here, here here's the first one. We are in roughly the same position, my fellow global leaders, as James Bond today, except that the tragedy is this is not a movie and the doomsday device is real and the clock is ticking to the furious rhythm of hundreds of billions of pistons and turbines and furnaces and engines with which we are pumping carbon into the air faster and faster record outputs and quilting the earth in an invisible and suffocating blanket of CO2. Okay, so that's interesting so far. So what, what are the things I found peculiarly uh, interesting about that is the implicit repudiation of the Industrial Revolution, mm -hmm. of production, uh, of, the, of the cultural mandate, of uh, human uh, productivity. The problem is man's... Uh, it's ir ironic, isn't it? It's... Uh, man's technology is the problem and he proposes to solve it with man's technology i mean there's yeah. an inherent contradiction there yeah i was just uh, just gonna say notice how man is both the hero the james bond mm -hmm. as well as the villain who is you know flipped the switch and set all these pistons pumping well those are the saved and the unsaved the elect yeah. and the non-elect right the reprobates because the reprobates are still driving cars um and the the whole notion here though those who are not on board with this are actually taking us to doomsday by their sin and rebellion. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see that in another in another clip in, in just a moment. But you've got the the, the 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 people who are the real problem are the ones driving the pistons, uh, the engines, driving the uh, the 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 machinery of of culture, um, as he flew in in his private jet, um, and as did most of the other participants. And and the, and we are those that are the, the those destroying the the planet, human well-being, and we're putting salvation at risk, and that becomes crystal clear in this next uh, segment. Again, uh, this is uh, this is still Boris Johnson trying to impress COP26. This is the climate summit in Glasgow. Here he goes again. The longer we fail to act, the worse it gets and the higher the price when we are eventually forced by catastrophe to act. Because humanity has long since run down the clock on climate change. It's one minute to midnight on that doomsday clock, and we need to act now. If we don't get serious about climate change today, it will be too late for our children to do so tomorrow. It would be easier to take it seriously if you weren't talking like you were in a Steven Seagal movie. <laughs> <laughs> Don't knock Steven Seagal. <laughs> Fair. Apologies, Mr. Seagal. <laughs> He's a listener. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I was just waiting for him to say, repent! Yeah, that's right. Um, because th this, is the, this is the tone, yeah. and he goes on to uh, talk about how, you know, the, the children not yet born who will judge us 
Mm. Uh, will ne- will we'll never forgive us. So you've got all the language yeah, yeah, of doomsday. Judgment. So you've yeah. got judgment. Yep. You've got the language of forgiveness. Yep. You've got mm-hmm. the, the 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 destroyers. Yep. And uh, you've got this elect. We must yep. act now. We must be those who who yep. uh, stop the clock before doomsday. Mm-hmm. An um, impending catastrophe. And yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, which we've heard a lot about before, of course. And uh, here's, here's a particular favorite clip of mine. One of the high priests of, of climate change here, um, Prince Charles, who I think was uh, part of the two-day kickoff of the conference. Um, and, uh, of course, he credits... Uh, he, he says that our teacher is uh, billions of years of evolution. Here's Prince Charles just for a moment. Try and stay awake. <laughs> Similarly, after billions of years of evolution, nature is our best teacher. In this regard, restoring natural capital, accelerating nature-based solutions, and leveraging the circular bioeconomy will be vital to our efforts. As we tackle this crisis, our efforts cannot be a series of independent initiatives running in parallel. Here we go. The scale and scope of the threat we face call for a global systems level solution based on radically transforming our current fossil fuel based economy to one that is genuinely renewable and sustainable. So, ladies and gentlemen, my plea today is for countries to come together to create the environment that enables every sector of industry to take the action required. We know this will take trillions, not billions of dollars. Cheap then. We also know that countries, many of whom are burdened by growing levels of debt, simply cannot afford to go green. Here we need a vast military-style campaign to marshal the strength of the global private sector. With trillions at its disposal, far beyond global GDP, and with the greatest respect, beyond even the governments of the world's leaders, it offers the only real prospect of achieving fundamental economic transition. Hmm. Joe, just... Speaking of Bond villains. Oh, absolutely. But, and it's interesting you referenced him in jest as a priest there, but aren't, Mm -hmm. aren't, aren't these people effectively acting as mediators? between kind of the wider society and, and what to them is the plan of salvation. Yeah, a new, a new global elite who right. are going to tell all of the ordinary people, yeah. the ordinary working people, yeah. uh, what their lives need to look like, yeah. how they should behave. Yeah. And Notice, they're able to, like you said, they're able to fly their jets in. Right. But the wider public can't do that. No, I mean... Uh, uh, you know, when he talks about uh, it's the understatement of the year to say that developing countries can't afford green technology. I mean, Africa mm-hmm. is called the dark continent for a reason. Right. So if you look at it from space, from a satellite, there aren't any lights on at night except a small pocket in South Africa uh, for over, the, over the majority of Africa. Um, for them, energy is already hugely expensive. The more expensive energy becomes, the higher prices of food. Uh, and so this is... This kind of um, drive spells catastrophe for the developing world. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, in, in many respects, it represents a, a huge attempt to transfer more wealth from the developing economies to back into 
uh, Western economies so that people are forced to buy Western so-called renewable technology. They don't tell you how they're going to get all of these batteries out of the ground uh, and um, the, the environmental cost of, of all of that. Uh, you know, think about the tiny battery on your phone. What's it going to cost to power hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of battery-powered vehicles and so on? I'm all for, because we're Christians, we believe in the Dominion Mandate, we mm -hmm. believe in human te technology as something that God has, has, uh, requires of us to rule and subdue, to, to, to serve, to care for creation, to be responsible. Those are all things that Christianity has uh, fundamentally taught from the very first book of uh, the Bible, um, that we have an obligation to turn creation into a God-glorifying culture. Mm -hmm. What this represents, though, is with this global martial plan. These are the these are the ominous words that, that must also take charge completely of the private sector. I hope you notice that, mm -hmm. uh, because that's where the, the, the money is, right. uh, and have this global martial plan to save the planet. Now, all of that spells your freedom disappearing. That's what right. people don't hear in those yeah. words necessarily. You'll own nothing and you'll be happy. That's mm. right. And so it's important that actually people just take in some of the content of these speeches of what many of these elites, and, and they're just representatives, right? I mean, the, these are the speech writers who are behind a lot of this. This is the thought form of the progressive world today, the globalists, the elites, mm. and it gets expressed in these opening speeches by heads of state and so on. Um, I was uh, I was reading just um, just today uh, a very short article by uh, a philosopher who I've referred to a few times I think on the show Sinead Murphy a British philosopher um, and she says uh, three major themes according to which our lives are currently being transformed and she identifies as well COVID climate and critical theory um, uh, and she uh, also notes that it cannot be realised that is zero COVID, zero carbon, zero tolerance, that it cannot be realized does not dilute its effect, which is, which is to instill in us a new contempt for the mechanisms of our bodies, for our impact on the world, and for the building blocks of social uh, interaction. Uh, essentially, that human beings and their activity in the world is fundamentally the problem. And this, this sort of reversal of the biblical command and of the right. biblical requirements, very, very telling in this climate cult, uh, this climate orthodoxy. There's a big, big difference between uh, being responsible, godly stewards of our environment and the religious doomsday uh, religion uh, cult of this, this climate uh, uh, green movement. Um, and you hear it in the religious language there. And I thought it's, it's, um, it was interesting to reflect today because this week on the 11th, it's Remembrance Sunday. Right. Sorry, uh, um, the Thursday is the 11th, right? It's Remembrance That's right. That's Day. Right. Yeah, right. And then uh, the, 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 the following Sunday is Remembrance Sunday. And uh, at that time when we, you know, we begin to see poppies out now, people wearing poppies on their jackets and so on, is a time when we're actually remembering the sacrifices people made for freedom, in particular the Great War, the First World War, and the Second Great War, the Second World War, are the two primary wars we think about on Remembrance Sunday. Mm. And uh, you think about that struggle for freedom, it was a struggle for freedom against tyranny. The Second World War in particular was a struggle against an ideology uh, that was tyrannical, 
and interestingly enough, was rooted in what Doiverd called blood and soil. And that mm. uh, wasn't Doiverd just making that up. That was the that was the the German Volk, the whole idea of um, a, a nature religion, basically a pagan nature religion, which undergirded undergirded Nazism. And, and I want to read just a couple of quotes on that because remember, this was the battle that um, our grandparents were engaged in. Uh, in in the struggle against uh, the the uh, vision, the totalitarian utopian vision, pagan utopian vision of uh, of Nazi Germany. So I want to quote now from uh, Mark Musa uh, and his book Na- Nazi Oaks. In 1934, Nazi biologist Walter Schinnigan uh, said national socialism um, and uh, environmental protection stand, quote, in a tight connection because the Führer wills a new German uh, Volksgemeinschaft whose foundation is drawn from blood and soil, i.e. from the primordial forces of life and soul that are proper to our race and from the nature-world bond that subsists between us and the sod of the homeland. He went on to say, Adolf Hitler demands that man must understand the basic necessity of the rule of nature and must grasp, also grasp how much his existence is subjugated from above to these laws of eternal struggle and contest. So there's your billions of years of, of evolution. And uh, uh, his writings um, basically placed Nazi blood and soil uh, he says, within the intellectual history of German Romanticism. So this mm. is part of the Enlightenment uh, movement. You've got the rationalistic yeah. emphasis first. Then you have the romantic emphasis. Musa goes on, he says, blood and soil became inextricably tied up with the environmental movement in Germany. Nazi ideologues used the blood and soil slogan for many practical purposes. Everything for getting, from getting Germans back to the land to calls for nature preservation and environmental sustainability, to emphasizing a bi-local self-sufficient economy. The slogan was also used to complain about capitalism, industrialization, internationalism, Judaism, and Christianity. And uh, the historian uh, uh, Conrad Günther bellowed, and I quote, by 1931, he forewarned that if Germany was not, is not successful in their nature protection endeavors, it will mean a betrayal of Germandom. So you've got these Nazi environmentalists, these Nazi ideologues basically claiming, and Musa goes on, that the Mosaic law contained no provisions for nature protection. Mm. Since the first book of Moses... The Jews do not know nature protection since God has given to the children of Israel all plants and animals for their enjoyment. So you see this, interestingly enough, this pushback in Nazism against the cultural mandate, against the Bible, Moses in particular, uh, and against this notion, actually, that human beings are created to have dominion in the earth, uh, to be vicegerents in the earth. And I quote Musa again now, like the Romantics and Monists before them, the Nazis blamed the humanistic emphasis found in the Judeo-Christian worldview for this widespread environmental destruction, as they called it. They believed the Judeo-Christian worldview artificially separated man from nature. So in other words, giving man a, a status of rulership, kingship over nature itself. Uh, in other words, the... the um, 
the, the this anthropocentric uh, view of, of of scripture, and he and he says Hitler himself flatly stated in 1941. This is in Hitler's table talk. Quote: It's senseless to encourage man in the idea that he's a king of creation. End quote. The Nazi considered the Judeo-Christian belief that man was the king of the created order to be both alien and unnatural. The Nazis were trying to eliminate both global capitalism and international communism in order to recover a reverence for nature lost in the modern cosmopolitan world. The Nazi religion was singular in its effort to consciously supplant Judeo-Christian forms and to offer in their place a religion of nature congruent with the perceived needs of a people uprooted from nature. And I thought that was interesting because I was looking at that again today. I do recommend that book. We often usually recommend a book. So Nazi Oaks, The Green Sacrifice of the Judeo-Christian Worldview in the Holocaust by R. Mark Musser, M-U-S-S-E-R. And um, that is not to say, of course, that every environmentalist, every person who's green um, is in sympathy with Nazism. What we're saying is that that particular pagan ideology lay under this drive to want to control everybody mm. uh, uh to, to build a, a religion a, a, an ideology of blood and soil that required man's total control to make sure that man could get back to nature and that uh, that was buried deep in the 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 nazi mindset at that time and, and i'm afraid that this same kind of mindset the man isn't a king of creation He's he's uh, he's raping and pillaging uh, creation, and uh, he needs to be stopped. And man needs to be restored to nature. And the the sort of the um, universal struggle uh, for survival in the universe, as as Charles uh, Prince Charles says, there you know billions of years of evolution is our teacher. That this kind of posture is the ground in which previous totalitarian ideologies were nurtured hmm. uh, and because it is anti-human and it's no surprise that it, it that the target of Nazi criticism was the judeo-christian worldview Moses the Bible um, that was the target the, and and this is again seen as the target today so this kind of radical nature cult this climate cult, is very fertile soil for the emergence of totalitarian ideas. And that's the link, I think, back to the 1930s uh, and, and 40s that is af often left uh, very much unexplored, uh, something that doesn't get talked about much. Mm. Right. Well, and I, I know we'd like to uh, transition shortly to you answering some of our listeners' questions. But before you do that, it, it seems to me, I, I'm sure it seems like this to all of us, but that, you know, these increasing systemic controls that uh, were being imposed, we're seeing imposed now through the climate change agenda. Well, mandatory coercive vaccinations fit so well uh, into all of this. Uh, would you care to comment on that, Joe? Yeah, it's, it's, that's fascinating that the, the very direct lines have been drawn by major public bodies, global bodies, uh, between COVID and climate. Uh, and the notion that actually um, climate is the mother of all health crises. Mm -hmm. You think about that connection, um, and uh, I think it was the CEO of um, an international nursing organization that made this statement recently at the WHO, 
that um, there is this deep connection between COVID and climate, and the mother of all health crises is not COVID itself, it's actually climate change. Mm. Now, if you <laughs> extrapolate the potential controls that could be uh, utilized there, um, when you consider what we're still in the grip of um, here in Canada and in various parts of the world. Uh, into, and I mean, it's, I've been astonished by the controls in the United States. Things that you would never imagine seeing in many states now across America, especially California, of course, and perhaps no shock there. Um, but uh, we, 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 we do owe a, a debt of gratitude to a, a, a listener or a reader who actually, knowing our um, reformational leanings, sent us a fascinating report from the Dr. Abraham Kuyper Foundation regarding compulsory vaccination that was written by Herman Doivert. And uh, hey, we know him. We, we've heard of that guy. <laughs> uh, and he, he makes um, uh, several remarks in this. He's talking about why um, the anti-revolutionary party uh, was so against compulsory vaccination. And that's the political party that Abraham Kuyper, did he found that party? Yes, I believe he did. He was key in it. Yes, I think he was the founder. I could be wrong on that, but I think he was one of them. Um, And uh, this is what Doivert says, compulsory vaccination affects freedom of conscience and therefore puts physical well-being above the well-being of the soul. That was the Uh, the first point. He says, secondly, the government does not have free disposition of the human body, even if it is convinced that that disposition is only for the benefit of that body. So even if the government says, well, we're doing this just for your good, that doesn't give it the the right to um, coercion. Divine ordinances, he says, I'm continuing to quote, also put a limit on the scope of the legal order. The legislator who infringes these limits does not violate unwritten rights of the subjects, but the divine ordinances. And this, I think, is very, very telling uh, when he says this. The human body is inseparable from the ethical person of man. Only materialism, which denies the independent right of the ethical person, can be guilty of such separation. Why did the Christian mind revolt again and again against man and God dishonoring slavery? Precisely because by this servitude of the body, the ethical personhood was ignored. Because the slave was regarded as res, as a thing, which the master could dispose of as a piece of cattle. The legal order which sanctions slavery was guilty of a transgression of the divine ordinances, which placed man as an ethical person in the midst of society. Personhood should never be infringed by the government. Slavery is perhaps only a very gross outgrowth, he says, of the principle that ethical personhood has no independent value. Mm. So he concludes basically by saying here, the government may not, according to God's ordinances, force the ethically free man to accept physical treatment in any form. The ethical person alone is appointed by God as the keeper and caretaker of the body. Whoever accepts compulsory vaccination in principle has deprived, deprived himself of the moral ground for opposing such usurpation by government of individual liberty. And uh, so there you go. That's the Reformation, Reformational tradition on the idea of compulsory vaccination, um, which is 
the idea that we can force you to be healthy. Right. Uh, in, in terms of the state's definition of what health actually looks like, we will coerce you uh, on our own terms to receive a, yeah. a treatment. And in many respects, the, what we're seeing with the climate cult is the attempt to coerce people's lifestyles, to coerce their work, their vocations, their choices, the details of their lives in terms of this utopian plan for saving uh, the planet. And as I pointed out in my article, which I do encourage people to read of sheep and men, let's remember to have compassion on these people because it's a religious imperative. Mm -hmm. If you do not have the living God of scripture who sends his son, Jesus Christ, as our redeemer and our savior, who is who holds all of creation in his hand, in whom all things consist, who is bringing history to its God-ordained end in the consummation of all things, who's establishing his kingdom. If you don't have that, then what do you have? You have only man in a chaotic environment threatening to crush him. Man must save himself by his utopian plan. He must establish the kingdom of man on earth, and he must justify himself. That's why we've seen these redefinitions of sin and righteousness. So mm -hmm. sin is not going along with mandates, uh, not going along with coercion, uh, 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 resisting um, all kinds of measures. Righteousness is obeying every bureaucratic uh, uh, resolution, mandate, uh, treatment, um, and basically taking upon yourself the self-denying um, uh, rituals. I mean, you know, you know, constantly and always wearing face nappies in all these various environments. Um, the, 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 the need to show yourself to be in, in strict obedience right. to social distancing measures, mm -hmm. um, supporting and openly verbally and visibly supporting all of yeah. that social righteousness. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of masochistic urge here as well of self atonement, which is if I suffer in this way, um, I may feel my sense of guilt carried away. I, human beings are sinners as Christians, we go to the Lord Jesus Christ and his atoning death, the blood of Christ, his covenant, which he is the sin bearer. He expiates his, our sin. He's the propitiation for our sin. If you don't have that, then you try and expiate your sin another way. You seek justification another way. And that will be through forms of masochism, um, forms of self-atonement, sadomasochism even, laying the punishment of your guilt on somebody else, the non-compliant. Uh, the COVID deniers, the climate deniers. Uh, these are the, the scapegoats. Let's get them because they are causing the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. Righteousness is to stand with uh, true faith and unity and sin and evil is to resist these things. So we've seen a redefinition of sin and righteousness. We're seeing this redefinition of salvation. And the compassion that we need to exercise is because outside of Christ, what else have they got? They've got blood and soil. That's what you've got. Uh, and the need to provide some kind of nature religion for human beings. And our posterity will never forgive us, Boris says. Yeah. They, we, there will be no atonement. There will be no justification. Uh, if we do not save the planet now, it's one minute to midnight. Doomsday is here. In all this rhetoric, you see this kind of religious urge uh, for justification and atonement and uh that's where we need to that's where in our cultural criticism in terms of scripture 
we need to ha- have this compassion that it it's either Jerusalem or it's Babel. Uh, it's not really Jerusalem or Athens. Hmm. Athens is merely an expression of Babel. Uh, it's Jerusalem or it's Babel. And the uh, the the tragedy in all of that. I don't. I don't want to sound overly pious or overly simplistic, but that there is real forgiveness to be realized like, right here at hand. Right. <laughs> Yeah, we shouldn't be misunderstood as when we, you know, at times the only response to this kind of insanity is satire, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you have to, if you didn't laugh, you'd cry when you hear mm-hmm. the supposed defender of the faith of That's the right. Church of England That's right. standing up telling us that, that billions of years of evolution is our teacher and that man must save the planet now and save himself with a global martial plan yeah. um, that encompasses all of uh the of life and the economy i mean that's that's false prophecy from the soon to be head of the church of england um and similar false prophecy from the prime minister uh, of the uk who's recently had some kind of epiphany i'm told about uh, uh the climate religion um and it's the same sort of soothsayers in these the pseudoscience of prediction and modeling that tell us have told us for the last two years about the impending doom of all humanity if we don't obey all of their measures. This is not this is not mockery, right? This is this is the analysis of the condition of human beings outside of Christ and what they look to. If you don't you don't dispense with the need for a word, an infallible word for history, if you're not a Christian. Our infallible word for history is in the word of God. It's the apostles and prophets. Mm-hmm. That's God's infallible word for history. If you dispense with the word of God and Christ, you don't dispense with the need for the infallible word, but that's either going to come now through a new elite or as it did in communism through the party uh, or through the sciences. Man must now speak the infallible word for mm-hmm. history in the same way that man must now establish his kingdom. So this is where we transfer these principles from Christ and scripture and the gospel to false gospels. And that's what these are. They are a parody of the real thing. And that's what also gives them power, we should add, is that actually what gives the the climate cult force and power is that it is a bastardization. It's an aping of the cultural mandate. So it radically distorts it, but it says, to a certain extent, it says we're responsible to care for the earth, but it doesn't recognize the earth as creation. And it doesn't recognize the human being's place within that creation. So it says really, uh, the earth is all there is, the universe is all there is, and human beings as a product of that are in a delicately fine balance with it all, there is no distinction of human beings from, they don't transcend in any way the rest of nature, as the scripture says they do, because man alone is made in the image of God. So the meaning of all creation in the Bible, as Doivert would say, is actually through man. Man is the center of meaning as God's image bearer for creation. And uh, this, the, 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 the distortion of the climate cult is to say, no, man is not the, uh, the, the vicegerent. He's not uh, God's image bearer, and therefore the 
the ground of creation or meaning uh, because the trees can't tell you what the meaning of things is <laughs> or, or your cat or your dog. It's human beings who talk about meaning. So, uh, and this is Christ who is fully man and fully God as the true man, as the last Adam uh, restores us to that proper mandate. So what gives the, the climate cult its force, its power is that, uh, and it's the sense that it seems convincing to people, is it takes a truth that, that human beings are responsible for their care for creation, the development of creation, and it turns it into a false religion because it takes the earth and idolizes it and says, this is all there is. Man has no special place. Man is not God's image bearer, denies the redemption in Christ, says man must save himself and this planet because that's all there is. And and that false story of redemption is nonetheless a story of redemption, and therefore right. it has cultural force. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, there's a there's a lot more that could be said about that. We're we're getting on uh, already. Uh, so Ryan's I going would, to seek I some forgiveness like, from the listeners. <laughs> I would like to get well. Let it never be said that we uh, plan these sessions we very well <laughs> you're right we're uh, we're running exactly to time <laughs> very scheduled uh i do want i'm going to give you one question for uh for i will today. answer it in two minutes all right i'm going to give you a quick one this uh this uh this is one uh directly to joe asking whether you affirm or reject the co- uh where th- these are questions uh, i should back up just a second a lot, a lot of the questions that we get have to do with some of the things that we talk about on the show, but a lot of them also have to do with this uh, this term that sometimes comes up and that's been thrown around, uh, which is theonomy. Mm-hmm. So we're uh, we're gonna just take a second and look at some some sort of traditional theonomic questions. Okay. In two minutes. So in two minutes, <laughs> so we'll sort this. <laughs> So, Joe, for you personally, do you affirm or reject the covenant of works, or what is sometimes called the covenant of creation? Yeah, that's an that's an interesting one. Um, the Puritans did talk about it; they did use the expression um, "a covenant of works." Um, I I can't uh, fully go along with it in the Puritan formulation there. Um, the Bible doesn't use the expression covenant about uh, the the man's original condition in paradise, that it's a covenant of works, as though man was going to earn somehow his uh, place within creation That's right. or his eternal destiny or by his works that somehow he would in some way justify himself. The, the, the problem with it is that the word covenant um, it is a kind of a treaty that involves law and blood. And um, because we're in a situation where there is no sin in the garden, um, no covenant is cut as such. Um, what we are told, what our first parents are told, though, is that they they need to that they've got freedom within the context of creation. But if they disobey the Lord, there is there are consequences. So you can there, and, and actually it's death. Yeah. So you can see that there is a a a. a, a what we might call a covenantal element here. The terms are set by God, which is really important with biblical covenants. Um, and there is 
uh, an obvious penalty. I think where the that it, where I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the term, even though I or the expression, even though I know what it's driving at, is that um, God's communication with uh, human beings and God's relationship to human beings has always been one of grace. Uh, and so the, the the situation for our first parents in the garden was one in which they walk with God. God. Uh, condescended in his relationship to human beings and he graciously gave them his word and so uh and their their life in the garden was a gift uh, and, the, and their life before god was a free gift of god's goodness god's kindness so i think i know what they're driving at and i uh, have some sympathy with what they're trying to say i think i'm a bit uncomfortable with employing language about the early part of Genesis there with the term covenant when it's not introduced till much uh, later in the in the book of Genesis. I don't see God having covenants of works with human beings in Scripture. The Mosaic covenant is not a covenant of works either. They're all covenants of grace. Mm-hmm. And, and God's uh, relationship with man, because it is of a greater to a lesser, is always a relationship that involves grace kindness mm-hmm. uh goodness um patience and so on so i think before man's fall into ruin um covenant may not be the most ideal word uh to describe the the, the paradise or condition it was one in which human beings lived and walked uh in the goodness the grace the kindness of god and then they rebelled and they were warned of those of those consequences but I, 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 as a as somebody who would embrace a covenantal reading of Scripture, I see the Scriptures as one unfolding of God's covenant of grace with human beings, and so I, um, I think we need to be careful with identifying a covenant of works in the Garden of Eden. Okay, that uh, personally, that's very helpful. I hope that was helpful for our listeners. Mm-hmm. And as we mentioned earlier, uh, we hope to dedicate an entire episode in a few weeks' time. That was a good hedge. We hope right. to. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I've learned. <laughs> and we, Go easy, easy now. <laughs> well, and we also hope to... Anybody uh, would think this was a James White podcast. We're well under an hour. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> We're not even on hour three yet. <laughs> but we also hope to uh, invite some special guests into this studio next week as part of our Church and Culture Colloquium. That's right. And uh, we're looking forward to that, and then an episode dealing with questions. And then after that, again, we hope to get back to uh, our, our um, ongoing discussion of reformational thinking. So um, stay with us as we uh, very much look forward to getting back to that theme as well. But that's all for today. This has been the podcast for Cultural Reformation, reminding you that from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time.